1: Our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference.
0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Sometimes I'll say something and I'll act as if I know what I'm talking about. And I have to take a step back and realize, you know what? I really don't know anything about this, but I'm like talking like an expert. And I see this all the time in social media. Like you ever notice that after the pandemic started, suddenly it seemed like everybody on your Facebook feed or Twitter feed was a closet epidemiologist and you never realized it? Well, this new book is just a fantastic book about the errors we make that prevent us from being successful and having peak performance because we tend to think we know more than we do. I might not be describing it exactly. The book's called Think Again, and Bill Gates has called this a must-read. Adam Grant, professor at Wharton and the author of Give and Take, Originals, Option B, which he co-wrote with Sheryl Sandberg, has written the book Think Again. This is now one of my favorite books. Like, it's, it's a book worth reading and rereading. It's all about how to avoid different cognitive biases, how to have intellectual humility, how to use these techniques and cognitive biases to know when you need to rethink something or think a little deeper or, or ask better questions and what the results of doing that is. So you can see directly how this could benefit your life. Anyway, once again, I'm talking too much. Here's Adam Grant. Adam Grant, once again on the podcast. So, Adam, how's it going? Good. How are you, James? Good to be back. You were
1: on right before the pandemic, I feel, right? For your last book? I think it was right before the pandemic when we came on with Wayne Baker. Yeah, yeah. And, um,
0: all right, so this is like your third time on. You've been on for Give and Take, Originals, and now... Oh, then you were on with Wayne Baker, and now your latest book, Think Again, which... I've read it. I would say, I I love all of your books, Adam, which is why I'm always excited to have you on the podcast. But I really think you went all out for this book. Was there anything different in your thinking as you wrote this book? Did you have
1: like, you know, the confidence of having written these very successful books before? Wow. Well, thank you, James. That's high praise, especially coming from you. I'm going to try really... Really hard to prevent you from rethinking that enthusiasm.
0: <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm, since this book is called "Think Again" and it's all about the benefits of rethinking, uh, I might just have to rethink it after this podcast, but we'll see.
1: I respect that completely. Uh,
0: so, yeah, did you, like, what what inspired this book? What was the motivating
1: factor? Uh, there were there were so many events. It's hard to pin one down, but I think one of the things that just kept happening over and over again was. I feel like my job is to think again, right It's part of what I love about being an organizational psychologist is I take all these assumptions about how people think they're supposed to lead and work and collaborate, and I test them. and sometimes <laughs> my evidence supports people's intuitions, other times it challenges them. And I just got more and more frustrated by the experience of you know going to a founder or CEO and saying, "You know actually, the evidence seems to support the opposite of what you're suggesting right now. And hearing things back like, well, but that's not how we do things around here. That's not the way we've always done it. I just, I started thinking through, okay, yeah, that was the mindset of a Blockbuster, a BlackBerry, a Kodak, a Sears. And it really started to bother me that people whose whole jobs are supposed to be organized around rethinking their visions and their strategies uh, were so resistant to it. And I decided eventually... When I run into a problem like that, I had to study it and try to make sense of it.
0: Yeah. And you, you, you know, you brought up, I I feel like this past year, 2020 was almost like a worldwide experiment in, on this topic of thinking again, like suddenly on Twitter, every single friend of mine was, I had no idea was actually a closet epidemiologist (laughs) in disguise. And they were, everybody was so sure of their opinions, like, you know, don't take hydroxychloroquine, take hydroxychloroquine. Vitamin. If you take vitamin C, you will never get this virus. Like everyone was like convinced, like my doctor told me, Like and, <laughs> and they were convinced of their opinion and no one ever once changed their opinion, no matter what. And I would, I've had this done to me. Some of the techniques you mentioned in this book are very interesting because I've had friends who have asked me questions like, you know, after a, a small debate on issues, a friend of mine once would say, what evidence would it take for you to change your mind? And that's one of the things you, you talk about in this book, but, and you talk all sorts of reasons why people kind of stick to their opinions, why it's so hard to to change and how, how you can change your own mind on occasions, how you can get other people to change their minds. So there's there's aspects in this about performance, persuasion, cognitive biases, and there's a lot of real practical advice as opposed to, and, and, and good stories of all, you know, giving examples of everything. So I have a whole bunch of pages bookmarked to ask you questions. But I just want to ask one question first, which is there's this story where you are pitching to some publisher and the guy is like, hey, maybe you should be reading some Adam Grant. And you're like, wait a second, I am Adam Grant. Like, what was that story?
1: <laughs> oh, this this actually happened with an academic paper I submitted to a journal. So the, the papers are all blind reviewed and you don't know who wrote them. And I got this rejection decision And I'm reading through it, and one of the reviewers has written a bunch of analysis of why my experiments were redundant with what we already knew. And then there was this line that says, you should really go back and read the work of Adam Grant. I'm like, dude, I am Adam Grant. You don't know that. I found, you know what, I happen to be intimately acquainted with Adam Grant. I found his prior work wanting, and I wrote this paper to try to address the flaws in his past work. But of course the reviewer didn't know that. It was it was such a hilarious moment for me but one of the things that I loved about it was it it really reminded me that one of the the great privileges and challenges of being in academia is you don't get to rest on your laurels right it doesn't matter how many papers I've published or what my standing is in the field when I submit this paper it's going to be blind reviewed by a bunch of critics who are there to try to find all the problems with it and make it better and that means my thinking gets stretched and I get to do a lot of rethinking, except when people tell me to reread my old work.
0: But but let me ask you this, though. Was he right? Sort of. <laughs> so, Like, were you saying something new with, with the,
1: the the research you had submitted? And maybe
0: you, you should rethink whether you had added to the
1: literature that you had already created. That, that was exactly the right question to ask. And it was not my first reaction. My first reaction was, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. I know my own work better than you do. But after I got over that defensiveness, what I realized was I was saying something new, but I hadn't made that clear. And I needed to not, I didn't need new data, but I needed to reframe what I thought the paper was really all about and help the, the reviewers see okay, here's why this is different from what I've done before. And that it actually, funnily enough, after getting rejected, has become one of my highest impact papers.
0: Really? That's, that's so interesting. Um, well, okay, I guess that starts off the discussion, but. Um, you know, again, we've all noticed a lot of this this past year. I think all anybody did for the past eight or nine months was argue passionately about BS all day long, every single day on Twitter. (laughs) So we, we have an excellent, a lot, lots of stories and case studies to look at, but, uh, what's, what's the main issue? Like, uh, you know, and you, you address this in the book, but, uh, let's talk about it. If do people's when people have a first instinct or a first impression or a first opinion of things, how often does it lead to, how often are they correct versus when they change their mind? Or how often does it lead to better performance? And
1: you have examples from tests, from life, and so on. At not often enough, I think is the short answer. So you, you know the data that I, I found really surprising on this, which is there, there's extensive evidence that if you follow your first instinct on a test, you're actually less likely to get the answer right than if you reconsider. Uh, and you know, strangely, like your, your intuition is not magic. Right? <laughs> the, the answer that seems obvious is not always the right one or the most, the most nuanced one. And even when you introduce students to this evidence and you say, hey, just want you to know there's a first instinct fallacy and a lot of people are overconfident in whatever their initial thought is and there's value in rethinking, they're not any more likely to do it. Uh, and I think part of that is is just the fear of regret, right? If if you had the right answer and you read you rethought it and you undid it, then you can beat yourself up for that. Whereas if you went with your first answer and it turned out to be wrong, eh, not that big of a deal.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you think that's like there's a there's a cognitive dissonance thing where if they rethink their answer, change it, or let, let's say it's um a, a, a an investing decision, kind of like in one of your books, I think it was originals about your, your decision not to invest in Warby Parker, which you regretted later when you rethink something and you, and the first answer turned out to be correct. You can't
1: handle it. Maybe. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to characterize what, what so many people grapple with. And, you know, frankly, I should say, I finally invested in Warby Parker last year, better late than never, Uh but it's, it's just when when you have an instinct and you ignore it, you feel like you. It's like missing a flight by by thirty seconds. There's this this just pain of oh, but I was so close. Whereas if you go with your gut and that turns out to be wrong, it doesn't feel like you had a real shot at being right. And the I don't think there's the same the same cognitive dissonance, the same motivation to look back and say. Gee, I I wish I had, I had reconsidered that. Right. It's almost like the, the correct solution
0: wasn't in your universe. When you just go with your gut instinct and the, and the first thing you think of is, is the decision you make. Uh, you, you weren't aware of the possibility of the, the successful answer, but once the successful answer is in your universe and you choose to ignore it, it sort of says something about your capabilities in some way. It
1: does. It's like the one that got away.
0: Yeah. And you, you mentioned a, um, a scenario where, uh, about a, a group of young kids going to Harvard who created a way to essentially network online with all the other people at Harvard and they didn't grow that into a huge business. And five years later, Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook and you were one of the co-founders of this initial attempt.
1: Yeah, thanks for reminding me, James. I was, I was <laughs> well, looking forward to reliving all my bad decisions. Today. You're gonna
0: probably relive it on every podcast you go on for this book because it's in the book.
1: It's inevitable. So. Yeah. No, it's you know, it's funny because we didn't even think to rethink it, let alone regret it. I remember being a high school senior, I applied to Harvard on a whim, didn't think I was gonna get in. The the thick envelope came and I was like, whoa, I can't believe this. But am I gonna be the dumbest person there? And am I gonna have any friends? So I went to AOL, which was the state-of-the-art tech at the time. I started searching profiles and I, I found a few future classmates. And we started a little email list. And every week we would add new people to the list. And yeah, by the time September rolled around, we had connected more than an eighth of the entering freshman class. But we then said, All right, we're in Cambridge. <laughs> we can walk to each other's dorms. Why do we need an online social network? We shut it down. And I think there were a bunch of flawed assumptions there. One one was that it was only, there's only value in an online social network for people who are trying to communicate across a distance. Two was that this was a hobby, not a business. Three was that it would appeal to a bunch of college kids as opposed to maybe all of humanity. And, you know, look, I don't, I don't know how to code James. I never would have imagined what Facebook would become, but it's so interesting looking back that at least two of the members of that original E group, uh, were, were already in the tech world one had built and sold a tech company. Another was a major hacker and they didn't think of it either. And it just, it's a good lesson for me in, in the the value of taking the assumptions that you make and questioning them.
0: Well, well, it's interesting because, you know, when you're 18 years old, 19 years old, it's not like you have extensive business experience. So you could say, oh, this is an idea that excites people. I mean, the light switch is really, can this idea that seems to be exciting, can this be turned into a business? Like all you would have needed to do was kind of think that thought. And what do you what do you think it would have taken to have thought that, that
1: thought? Like clearly Mark Zuckerberg thought it five years later. That's a great question. I don't know is the short answer. The longer answer is I actually had a couple of roommates who a few summers later decided that they were gonna start a video game company together. And they asked me if I wanted to join them. And it was it was one of those days where I'd heard them awake, laughing and talking very loudly at four a.m. Like, what are you guys doing? Like, We're going to start a company. Are you in? I'm like, what, who? What? What are you talking about? This is not going to happen. We're a bunch of college kids. What do we know about entrepreneurship? And meanwhile, I'm extremely risk averse, and I'm drawn eventually to you know to academia in part because. The the permanent job security of tenure feels like a great way to make sure that I can support myself and a family one day. And so I think for me, the big barrier was just a a deep-seated identity as somebody who doesn't take risks and just a complete lack of consideration of the possibility that I could ever be an entrepreneur. And the irony of this now, James, is people have often told me that I am an entrepreneur um, and not not just as an occasional co-founder or investor, but as an entrepreneur of ideas, right? Somebody who takes takes knowledge and builds frameworks around it and data behind it and then tries to spread it. And I wonder if I would have reconsidered if I had adopted that kind of identity sooner.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how adopting an identity for yourself and understanding what your values are. You have a chapter, for instance, The Joy of Being Wrong. So identifying oneself as, oh, I'm the sort of person who's proud of the fact that I could admit I'm wrong, might encourage someone to be a little bit more skeptical of their thinking in real time.
1: I would love to see more people embrace the joy of of being wrong. And I I had a fascinating conversation with uh, with Danny Kahneman about this after I'd finished a draft of the book. Uh, Danny, as a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, is the best I know of anyone at finding out that his intuitions were false and just being excited about it and saying, well, that's the only way I knew I learned something is I found out that that I'd been wrong. But he said, you know, there's actually no joy in being wrong. The joy is in having been wrong because now you know you're less wrong than you were before. And so nobody likes in the moment finding out that they are wrong. It's the, oh, I was wrong. And now I've made progress. I've learned something that can be exhilarating and, I would love to live in a world where people experience that joy more often,
0: wouldn't you? Absolutely. Because you know, you know what the interesting thing is about being wrong? As a writer, I say this. Being wrong is more likely to lead to a story than being right. No one wants to hear about, oh, do you want to hear about this time I was really right and I made a ton of money and I laughed about it at the end? <laughs> no one wants to read that story. <laughs> but they like, um they like the story where, oh, you know, let me tell you about this time I was wrong. And boy, did I I missed discovering or making facebook and i really violently argued against starting a social networking company and this is what happened like people want to read that story like oh he's like me you know i'm screwed up too sometimes you think uh, it's more
1: relatable it's more humanizing
0: absolutely like again if you think about storytelling or comedy i think it was carrie fisher who said no one laughs at the jokes of a really good-looking person, <laughs> like they're just not interested. Like you have to kind of be like screwed up in some way to be funny, and, and this all this stuff too. Like I, I don't know, you, you don't have kids right now, right? Oh no, we have three kids. Oh, three kids. I'm sorry, I I, I forgot. And uh, so I have I have a bunch of kids as well, and I find a lot of the stuff you also write in this book I relate to as a parent. Like my my kids will ask me something like, you know, is is the world temperature going up? Or you know, what do you think about this issue with the coronavirus? Or what's going on with BLM? And I'll find I'm pontificating to my kids and talking like I know what I'm talking about. And then I find I it's I st- this was happening so much where I finally it became a joke in my house where I finally would stop in each conversation and say you know what. I actually have no clue. I'm just, <laughs> ma- I'm very convincing and I'm making this up as I go along. And I also am persuading you to believe in me. And I have, you address the issue of having too much confidence. And I do that a lot with my opinions and I'm well-spoken with them. So people tend to believe what I
1: say when I don't even know what I'm talking about. That's so funny. It's, you know, we've, we've had a similar experience in our house where, so our kids are, are 12, 10 and seven and yeah, you know, occasionally they'll come home and ask a question about, like, there's been an, obviously a lot about politics that they've not understood lately. And it's so tempting to say, well, actually, here's how the Constitution works. And here's what's allowed and not allowed. And I've had to catch myself and say, first of all, I am definitely not an expert in that area. Second of all, this is such a great opportunity for us to do some learning as a family. And so what I'm trying to do now is, is whenever a question comes up that I know I don't have a ton of knowledge about, instead of sharing the little bit that I do know, I'll say, oh, that's such an interesting question. Why don't we go and find out? How, how could we get the answer to that? And what I'm trying to do is, is encourage our kids to think a little bit about, well, what would a credible source be? Or, what kind of information do I need to search for? Can I trust a Google search on this? Do I need to go to one of my textbooks? Uh, should I ask one of my teachers right? And I think uh, there's so many opportunities to get kids engaged in that kind of uh, that kind of discovery, which is part of what keeps you open to rethinking
0: yeah, uh, I, I think that's probably a good lesson for you, for your kids as well there's um Charlie Munger has uh, uh, something he calls inversion in an argument where he won't. Argue with some, someone about an issue unless he can argue their side even better than them. And when I've tried that approach with people, it's amazing how well it works because then I can see right away when they don't make an argument that is as strong as they could possibly make it. I could tell them that's not, you could, you should say this to me and I might be convinced. Like if you, if you argue this, 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 then I might be able to be convinced. And it's similar to you, you know, one of the suggestions you make here, which basically is the same thing. It's like steel manning your argument instead of straw manning your argument, where you
1: kind of steal the other side. Your Your version of this is much funnier though, because I think if if I just heard you right, you're basically saying to the other person, look, you should stop talking and let me talk to myself and I'll I'll convince myself if you let me do that.
0: Yeah. And it, it works. Like, uh, I've had, I've had, uh, a, a, a debate recently where it was like an internet thing. A lot of people were watching and I had to do this technique during the debate, which is no, no, no. You, you th- what you just said was like a false equivalence, but maybe if you say this, this, and this, you'll, it'll be a stronger argument for you. It's like, kind of like saying, let's just start over again. And then you, now you debate, like I was was trying to make it
1: entertaining. So I have a question for you on this. Yeah. I, I didn't know how to react at first. Uh, I was I started by being very excited that Jerry Seinfeld referenced you in his New York yeah. Times piece because I feel like that's that's a career peak, right? for for anybody that for for Jerry, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, you know what? It, it might have been actually. Uh, I wasn't so happy that he called you a putz, and yeah. I also just thought like it was his argument was so single minded. I I wondered so if I remember correctly you were arguing that you that New York was dead and he said no it's not. Have you rethought any of those views uh, or do you think it's him that needs to do all the rethinking?
0: Uh yeah, it's interesting and uh first off I I kind of ignored his article except for the backlash that resulted around it, but uh, the backlash against me mostly because he was just calling me insults for most of his article and it's the first op-ed he's ever written. And I appreciate his, his passion. It's the same passion I have for New York city. Like I don't want New York city to be dead, but then gradually so many people kind of piggybacked his opinion. And a lot of people I knew ended up writing poorly about me. And, uh, so it did affect me in the, in the long run, but, uh, Did I rethink anything? No, only because, and maybe this is some sort of confirmation bias, there's more and more data keeps coming out that New York city is in trouble. So maybe, but maybe I need to rethink it because, uh, you know, I, 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 make some predictions in the article and those predictions have been coming true, which is that real estate's been going down. Offices are still empty. Restaurants are closing. Broadway is still closed now till at least the summer. So all these things and, you know, rising unemployment, this is the biggest exodus of New York city in history, the biggest drop in property taxes, uh, in history. And we don't know yet about income taxes. So, so far, there hasn't been enough time to rethink anything, but there are some strong opinions I have that I've rethought a little bit about like my stances on college and not owning a house. I'm against sending kids to college or I have been historically and I I still largely am and even more so than ever, but I can see some circumstances now where a kid maybe should go to college. And same thing with owning a house. I am totally against buying a house, but I could see some circumstances now, which I couldn't see before, where it would make sense for somebody to own a house, even though I think financially it's most likely a horrible decision. But uh, so those are things that I've rethought a little bit also on politics. I re, I, I changed my mind a lot. Like I was supporting somebody for one office recently, the, the election hasn't happened yet. I've decided to support someone else, even though I had donated money to the first huh. uh, person. So that was a big, it's still ongoing change, but that was a big change for me. And even on the presidential stuff, I, I went back and forth on, on some of the candidates. So, I want to say I'm proud that I could change my mind, but I don't really know because as you point out in the book, and as as Danny Kahneman points out, cognitive biases, the, you, you point out the, I don't have a bias bias. <laughs> like most people think they don't have cognitive biases. They're too smart for that, or they're aware of them. But that's actually a bias that, you know, many people fall for is like, oh no, I'm too smart to have a bias. So you don't really know if you have biases or not. Like, so I guess, you know, this is a starting point on just practical ideas. Like, how can one be more open-minded and get around cognitive biases? And Kahneman, I don't think, believes it's possible.
1: He, he definitely thinks it's extremely hard and that it's easier to document the biases than it is to fix them. Uh, or that we see them, we see them clearly in hindsight, but it's very hard to catch ourselves in the moment. I think it depends a lot on the bias, of course. And I think that for me, the first step is to to let go of this, I'm not biased bias and say, okay, look, you know, if, if you know a lot of smart people, which you do, and you see them all falling into cognitive traps, what are the odds that you're immune to those? They're pretty low. And in fact, the data tell us that the more convinced you are that you're not biased, the more biased you tend to be because you don't bother to check yourself and you don't catch your biases as much. So I think, you know, there's there's just a basic level of intellectual humility that's required here to say my thinking is flawed in a lot of ways. There are a lot of things I'm ignorant about. And the more confident I am in something, the greater the odds that I'm ignorant about it. Uh, and then I think what we're looking for is is a healthy amount of doubt and curiosity. And you you actually gave us a great example of that when you said, look, you know, I used to just believe that people shouldn't go to college or that they shouldn't own a house. And you've added all this nuance to your thinking. And you've said, okay, well, I think on average, I would tell most people not to do that. But I can recognize there are some conditions where that wouldn't be a good good recommendation. And I can also realize that, okay, I've analyzed the homeownership decision from a financial perspective. But for some people, it's, you know, it's a much more of an emotional decision. uh, Or there may be other criteria that they're trying to maximize on. And so I can't judge that because I can't quantify that, right? And that's the kind of humility we're looking for to say, all right, whatever my opinion is, there are probably times it would change. There are people for whom it would evolve. And I just want to recognize that I can't project all of my preferences and assumptions on everyone else. Yeah. And it's,
0: it's sort of like, you know, the, you, you bring this up in the chapter where you mentioned the Dunning-Kruger bias, you know, 94% of people think that they're good listener or above average listeners, or, you know, nine out of 10 people think they're above average drivers, which of course is impossible. Or let's just, I'm using the word average instead of median, but. Uh, and this is because Dunning-Kruger bias is sort of like a little knowledge is a bad thing, sort of thing where you, you think you have enormous knowledge when you just have a little, I actually think that Dunning-Kruger bias has some good aspects to it, which is that when you suck at something, it gives you this artificial confidence to continue until you're
1: halfway decent enough to realize that you suck. Well, pause on that for a second though. Cause I, I'm not sure if that's true. And I, I'm curious to to hear more about why you think that. So the the Dunning and Sanchez work, uh, or I should say, well, some some of the David Dunning work uh, with a number of colleagues, suggests that once you get to a level of, you go past beginner status, uh, and you're not you're not a, you're not an expert, you haven't achieved mastery, you know a little bit or you have some skill, that you start to overestimate your ability to the point that you stop learning. So if you look at the data, for example, on emotional intelligence, the people who score low on emotional intelligence tests are the least convinced that they need to improve and the least likely to seek out coaching or further development in that area. And that makes me worry that people get stuck on that, uh, that Mount Stupid Summit, right? Where you, you don't see your own ignorance and you're blind to your blindness. What makes you more optimistic? Are you assuming though that, let's say in every industry, the people
0: who are the, the real greats in that industry, did they not have done Kruger bias in the beginning?
1: That's such an interesting question. I think some of them probably had it, but it was more, I guess I'd say it might've been either more or less domain specific. So I, I can think of, uh, if we take great entrepreneurs as a, a group that we both spend a lot of time thinking about and, and interacting in that world, I can think of a lot of great entrepreneurs who were extraordinarily confident in their ability to do something great to a level that, that you or I would probably call narcissistic. But they also had a healthy level of humility and doubt about whether they had the the right skills or the right strategies. Uh, And they were extremely flexible around trying to to find the best way to launch their companies or to make their ideas real. And then there's a, I guess I could see a reverse of this too, which is people who are very confident in something like their ability to code, but also recognize that they didn't know how to run a successful business and surrounded themselves with people who could complement their skills. And so I guess there's a, when, when I think about Dunning-Kruger normally, I think about it as applying to an area of knowledge or skill and as kind of limiting your ability to grow in that particular area. But if you're overconfident in your general ability, um, you know, maybe maybe there's some motivation that comes from that.
0: Is is this related to, like, Carol Dweck's mindset? So fixed mindset versus growth mindset. So if you have a fixed mindset and you have Dunning-Kruger bias, you might think, oh, I'm a genius at this. And then as soon as you hit resistance, like people who really are genius at something you, you give up and say, okay, there's nothing that can help me. I've I've reached a peak. Uh, whereas if you have growth mindset, I think then, even if you had Dunning-Kruger bias, maybe you start to think, oh, okay, the more I, you know, there's the cliche, the more I learn, the more I realize how much
1: I need to learn. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a great way of capturing the distinction here. And it's something that I've heard entrepreneurs talk about over and over again. Um, Sarah Blakely and Reed Hoffman, both, both really captured this nicely when they said, look, I, didn't, I, I was just asking them about how they had the confidence to start Spanx and LinkedIn. And neither of them said that they had any confidence in their abilities today, but they had confidence in their abilities to learn tomorrow. And I think confidence in your ability to learn, that probably involves a growth mindset. And it means when you run into a brick wall or you struggle in some way, that that's a clue that you should go back to the drawing board.
0: You say in the very beginning of the book, there are like three categories in which people tend to think like either a preacher, a politician, or a, uh, what was the what was the third P or the second P? A prosecutor. Prosecutor, right. And so uh, maybe you describe those and, and what you mean by that. And then, of course, there's the fourth category, which you sort of uh, carve out, which is scientist.
1: Yeah. This So the original insight comes from Phil Tutlock, who said... When we make judgments and decisions, and actually just in our daily thinking and and conversations, we sort of strangely spend a lot of time in the modes of these jobs that we've never done. So we're preachers when we've already found the truth, and our job is to proselytize it to others, because we're trying to defend our sacred beliefs. We're prosecutors when we're trying to win an argument, and James, I've got to prove you wrong. Uh, and then we're politicians when we've got an audience that we're we're trying to please or get the approval of. And so we do all this like, campaigning and uh, and lobbying. And my big worry is that if we're stuck in preaching or prosecuting mode, that we're not open to thinking again. Because I've already found the truth, right? I'm right. You're wrong. I don't need to budge. You're the one who needs to change your mind. And that we're a little more flexible when we think like politicians, but we're flexible in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons.
0: Right. Like you might not you, you might agree to something, but
1: you but because you don't care, because you only care about winning office. Exactly. And I, I might yeah, I might end up saying a whole bunch of things that I don't believe, or I might change what I believe in order to fit into your tribe, but I'm not actually interested in the truth. And that obviously scares me. So I, I got immediately curious about what a, what's an alternative frame of mind? And and you said it's a scientist. I don't think that everybody needs to put on a white coat and carry around a bunch of test tubes, right? I think of of a scientific mindset the same way I, I just talked about being a preacher, a prosecutor, a politician, which is to say, look, a scientist's highest value is finding the truth, and that means instead of holding beliefs that become part of your identity, you say, you know what, these are just hunches, and I could turn them into hypotheses. And then I could run little experiments in my life and make observations and gather data and find out whether my hypotheses are true or false. And I think that's where we gain mental flexibility. Because when you're thinking like a scientist, uh, you are more interested in finding out what's right than convincing yourself you were already right and other people were wrong.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, so how can you, I mean, and you kind of give it, or you do give a a lot of advice on this throughout the book, but what would be your recommended way for someone listening to this to first off convince them that, Hey, you should at least try this thinking like a scientist about, let's take an issue that, that most people hold dear. So, uh, like there are political issues like, uh, pro gun control or not for gun control or, or even bigger, like pro choice or pro life. People are, literally religious on both sides of this issue and to the point where they don't even want to have friends who are on the other side of this issue. And I'm familiar with this just cause my, one of my business partners for the past 21 years, my closest business partner for the past 21 years is pro-life and I'm pro choice, but often we have to talk about this issue for various reasons. And how would you go about it? If you realize, okay, I'm definitely, pro-choice, but this person I'm interacting with is pro-life and normally that would ruin the relationship.
1: Like, but what would you do? Well, what am I trying to accomplish? Am I trying to open their mind or am I trying to have a thoughtful conversation? Well, okay. That's an interesting question because do you think it's possible to change someone's mind? Possible? Sure. I think it's a lot harder than most of us would be comfortable admitting. And I, I, my, my read of the, the work in psychology on, on what's called motivational interviewing is rarely do you succeed in changing anyone else's mind. You're better off helping them find their own motivation to change their mind. And so... Yeah, so what do you mean? So to, to, to talk about that. Well, so what I might do, so let's, let's make this concrete. So uh, let's say I am pro-choice and you're pro-life and I'm trying to motivate you not to necessarily change your mind, but at least to be flexible right? And receptive to alternative points of view. I think the mistake that a lot of people would make in my shoes is uh, I, either I start preaching about why I'm right, I prosecute you for being wrong, or if, if I'm at least trying to understand you, I ask you why you're, you're so passionately pro-life. And the problem with that strategy is you're going to come up with a bunch of reasons that reinforce your existing convictions. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, what, what the data suggests works better is to ask you how questions. Uh, which are more likely to reveal the gaps in your knowledge. So, what I might ask is um, how do you know that life begins at conception? Yeah, I, I so,
0: okay, I'll, I'll, let's say I'm pro life. I would say, well, A, uh, it is life, right? There's whatever it is, uh, I don't know what it's called pre fetus, but whatever's there is actually alive. It's a biological creature at that point. Like it's a bunch of cells put together, but that's enough for life
1: yeah, and I would say that's that's true. But by the way, right? I'm not a biologist. <laughs> no. so I'm just making that up. Right? No, no, As but I right. so it. I'm not either. And I would say, to the mm-hmm. best of my knowledge, I think that's true. Uh, I think the sophistication of life at that stage is, you know, comparable to uh, to other primitive life forms. And you know if you've ever um if you've ever swatted a fly right, or stepped on an ant, then you know you're also snuffing out life there. And so I imagine you put human life in a different category, right because if I'm pro-life or religious reasons, you know, man is created in God's image. Right. So, I mean, look, I, I, obviously I don't, I don't have a way to falsify that. I don't have data to speak to that. Uh, What I do find interesting about that point of view though, is that um, my understanding is that until the 1970s, conservatives uh, did not believe that. uh, And that this is a relatively new development in, uh, in thinking on the right. And so if, if that was true, shouldn't it be true all along?
0: Uh, I, uh, well, I don't know that about the political change because it was illegal before the 1970s, you know, or, you know, mostly illegal. So I, I don't know how that
1: evolved. Like, who was against abortions then? Uh, that is a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I think we should we should try to to get to the bottom of that together. And if you have any good sources on that, I would love to read them. Um, I, read a, I read an article a couple months ago about how you know, people who are, are staunchly pro-life uh, believe that this has always been the platform of their political party. Um, and if you trace the history, the pre-Reagan era, um, there was a, I, I don't think this necessarily tracks with, uh, with the timing of, of abortion per se, but my understanding is that, uh, that there was a consensus that life began later uh, and that it, you know, it evolved over time. And I guess what, what that makes me wonder is if such a deep-seated belief like that can evolve. And you know, I, I'll i dig up the article. You should take a look at it, right? Tell me whether you agree with the interpretation or not. But if that kind of belief can evolve, it makes me wonder if what people believe today could evolve too. So um, is there anything that would change your mind on this or have you completely made it up?
0: Uh, well, since I'm not actually pro-life, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but what's interesting is So you also suggest in the book to have conversations about the conversation. So now, so this was a good conversation because I felt like the way you couch things is that, okay, let's go on a journey together and explore this, the nuances of this issue without having to um, express to each other a final decision. So it felt more like an intellectual journey or like a quest than a debate or an argument. And you suggest talking about the conversation particularly when things get heated things weren't heated but I just analyzing yeah. how we did just that minute that was interesting and much more useful for both sides i think
1: and that's the hope it's obviously it's an imperfect role play in a lot of ways but it's also me trying really hard not to launch into prosecutor mode which is my biggest advice of these different mindsets uh, it just it really bothers me when when somebody according to the best data that i have appears to be wrong and i feel like i'm Helping them by correcting their opinion, and strangely, it doesn't come across that way. And so, I, I like your idea of, of thinking about this as an intellectual journey together, because that's exactly what a scientist would do. Uh, somebody who's truly committed to thinking like a scientist would say, "Huh, this is so interesting. Like James is a smart, reasonable person. He has a completely different view on this issue from mine. Uh, let me, like, let me try to understand why that is." And maybe he's going to be curious about why we're so far apart, too, and we can learn some things from each other. And to your point about having a conversation about the conversation, we may not agree on our, on our conclusions, but we can at least try to find some common standards, right? Some sources we both agree are credible. Uh, and I think that, that gets us closer to having a, a thoughtful discussion.
0: Yeah. And let me ask you, like, during, there was obviously huge issues this in 2020 that really polarized people. One was issues around the coronavirus and and the various economic lockdowns associated with it there was the black lives matter protests and there was of course the election Uh, did you encounter personally did you say to yourself what you just said right now like oh this person's an obviously smart person but why don't they see the same way as me on this one issue or two issues or whatever did you have that happen to you in 2020
1: oh definitely yeah and i've already had it happen to me in 2021 too (laughs) Uh, I I have a friend who's uh, who's not a fan of vaccinations, and I had had an argument. Oh, oh, that was a painful one for me in 2020. Uh, I had a
0: yeah. huge thread on Facebook, which had thousands of comments, and I was I was getting sucked in so much. A friend of mine called me literally like an intervention and said, "What are you doing? Like, stop <laughs> commenting on your own thread on this." But go ahead, sorry.
1: No, no, no. It's I think it's a lot of people have gone down that rabbit hole and it's funny because a few years ago uh, this friend had come to visit and I didn't know that he was uh, he was so opposed to vaccines and uh, I found out that none of his kids had been vaccinated and he was never planning to have them vaccinated and w- the the debate was so frustrating that I swore I was never going to talk to him about the topic again but then COVID hits and I mean my read of the evidence is the vaccines are our best hope for ending this pandemic. Uh, I'm not we don't know anything, really, about the long-term side effects yet and the risks. Uh, we know a lot about the risks of COVID, right? And so it seemed to me that from a public health perspective, all the epidemiologists I've talked to have said very clearly, we need to make sure that there's widespread adoption here. And, you know, it's funny because if you look back, can you imagine if if Americans had refused the polio vaccine? Uh, I I cannot imagine Uh, And,
0: you know, it's funny because my, or it's not funny, but my, my mother has polio. She was born like right Uh. before the vaccine was developed. And so her leg, uh, you know, is in, was, was in bad shape ever since she was two years old. And what in this vaccination debate that I was having on Facebook, this is like a year ago before pre pandemic actually. But in this debate, people were telling me my mother probably didn't have polio and, or that, that, or that. Wow. Polio or another argument was polio was already going away. The vaccines did nothing. It just kind of coincidentally went away when the vaccine was delivered. And, and then the third argument was that now it's all mixed in with so many other vaccines that there's no one's really done a test on how all these vaccines interact with each
1: other. So there really was no, it went from argument to argument to argument. So there's really no arguing. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's so frustrating when the conversation stalls there, right? Because you just have people digging their heels in and repeating their their old points. And I think the the psychology of motivational interviewing would say that if you could get the in the mode of a scientist and have the humility and the curiosity to say, like, wow, what like what an interesting data point. Let me let me get to the bottom of that. One of the things you can do is you can you can actually literally interview people and try to help them see the complexity and the nuance in their own thinking. So I, I called my friend up and I said, listen, I, I, I don't want to convince you of anything here. I'm long past believing that's possible. Uh, and our friendship is also important to me. And I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. Um, one thing I want to understand better is where you fall on different vaccines. Because I know it's complicated. They all have different ingredients. Is there a spectrum of some that you're more against versus more comfortable with? And I was shocked. He said, well, actually, yeah, there's this one vaccine, BCG, uh, which is kind of interesting. And I'm like, oh, I never thought I heard you, I hear you call a vaccine interesting. And he said, well, you know, you always have to evaluate the pros and cons. And I said, okay, well, I looked it up, and I, I said, okay, that, that seems to be for tuberculosis. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a lot of that in the U.S., but if you were traveling somewhere that did, would you consider giving it to your kids? And he said, well, you always have to consider I don't expect him to get any vaccinations for his kids tomorrow. I don't expect him to get any of the COVID vaccines. But the fact that he was willing to say, I am not equally opposed to all vaccines, and I recognize there are some circumstances where the benefits could outweigh the costs, that felt to me like progress in our conversation because he was being open in a place where he had been stubborn before. And it just, the, the big lesson for me that I have to keep relearning is sometimes you, I, I would say more often than not, if your goal is to, to encourage the other people, the, the, excuse me, sorry. If your goal is to encourage the other people, <laughs> third time's a charm. If your goal is to encourage the other person to be open, you should do less talking, more listening. You should give fewer answers and ask more questions and let people see their own thoughts in a mirror.
0: First off, I I... I like the phrase you use in the book to describe this, called inverse charisma. So where you literally emanate no vibe, which suggests you're trying to convince or or use your personality to overwhelm someone with an idea, which is so easy to do, particularly if you're familiar with all the arguments and, and so on. Um, the other thing is it sounds like your goal was again, like you say, not to convince them, and it's not like he's going to vaccinate his kids tomorrow. Your goal really was to have a decent conversation. Yeah. Do you feel like a lot of this, and this just made me think of it. Do you feel like a lot of the times when we're arguing a point, we we're not, we're not any of these categories. We're actually just handed a script. Like here are the, if you're uh pro vaccination or if you're anti-vaccination, here are the talking points and you read your talking points somewhere on the internet, you know, uh, from yeah. other arguments that have happened and you just spit out those talking points in your argument, but you stand by them really forcefully. You stand by this script.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, social media is full of that, right? And, yeah. And it's, it's sad because, as you know, one of the, the consistent findings in the psychology of persuasion is that if you try to change somebody's mind and you fail, you actually increase their resistance. Right, you're you're inoculating them against the counter arguments you've used. And now they know them mm-hmm. and they're ready to respond to them. And you know, it's it, you saw this when you when you went down that that vaccine rabbit hole, right? There are these knee-jerk responses that people give. Like, well, what do you mean they don't cause autism? There's this study and this study. And what I I, I actually I had a version of this discussion with my friend, and the only way we got anywhere was for me to say, look, um, I don't know anything about Vaccines, right? That's that's obviously not my expertise. I'm not a healthcare professional by any means. I'm not an epidemiologist. I said uh, I do I do know something about research design and statistics. That's part of what I do as a social scientist. Um, do you you know Do you respect my understanding of how to design a rigorous study and how to interpret evidence? And he said, Yeah, I will never argue with you about how to do science. I know you know more about that than me. I said, Okay, so look, I don't know what the data are going to show here, but when there are a lot of studies in an area, we don't read the individual studies. We read, we read the meta-analyses, the studies of studies. They accumulate all the data points and adjust for the rigor of the designs. So what I would encourage you to do is look at what the meta-analytic results say. And then whatever the meta-analysis says is the closest to the truth because it's, it's, uh, it's addressing the flaws across the whole body of evidence and asking us what's the, what's the overall picture. And he said, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, and that became an opportunity then to follow up and say, okay, have you have you done this research? Have you looked into the meta-analyses? What do they show? And then <laughs> there was a meta-analysis showing no relationship between vaccines and autism. And he came back and said, but there are all these studies that weren't included in the meta-analysis because the meta-analysis is six years old. I'm like, okay, you know what? Knowledge evolves, right? We put in more studies, we might see different results. I will tell you though, statistically, uh, I looked up the meta-analysis, it had an, uh, a sample size of over a million people. These, the effect size from a few of these studies with the, the small samples they have uh, has to be enormous, like almost as if vaccines are guaranteed to cause autism in order to undo the effect that we see across this huge sample. And so, I again, I don't know what the data are going to show, but here's how how I would think about the statistics— and again, I'm not I'm not trying to convince him that I'm right and he's wrong. I'm just trying to help him think through what are the most rigorous ways to analyze the information in front of him.
0: Like given what you said in response to his response, it would did he move at all on the issue of do vaccines cause autism?
1: I I don't think so yet. I think I don't know if he will move move on it. I think he he believes there are some particular ingredients uh, that are in some vaccines that have been demonstrated to increase the risk of autism. And that there are a bunch of reasons why uh, you know there's there's a bias in the data. and you know, you're only able to publish the studies that don't show a result because the pharma companies and the CDC are in cahoots. and so we, we, you know you go you go in a completely different direction. and and there I just say, look, you know what, I, I believe that some conspiracy theories end up coming true. Uh, I, I also believe that conspiracies are really hard to pull off. And do you believe that uh, that an independent community of scientists, many of whom have tenure and can do whatever they want, that they're all that easily kind of bought and and duped? And then what about the journalists? Like, you are telling me there is not one journalist out there who wants to win the Pulitzer for, you know, for for discovering that there's a massive conspiracy and it was so interesting to to have that discussion because again I'm I'm asking him not why he believes what he believes but how could the theory that you have how could that have actually held and it becomes very difficult to explain and that that's what we see over and over again that when people have to explain the how the how did this come to be or how how will these effects play out um, they do start to see the own gaps, the, the gaps in their own knowledge, and that's all I want to do, right? Is to say, look, this is really complex, and I think if you have a a simple view on it, it's probably not complete.
0: So what, like, we all have a lot of beliefs, and we all all have a lot of things that we'll, we'll stand by and 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 fight for. But how do how can we even think that we're right about anything? Well, let's take the reverse. Like, given that we're wr- we're wrong about a lot of things. How do we know if we're ever right? <laughs> Oh, this is fun.
1: I I don't think being right should be the goal. I think the goal should be getting closer to the truth.
0: But let's say let's say I'm trying to build uh, a model of health so that you know I'm I'm going from middle age to older, and I want to have high quality of life as an older person. And I read lots of literature, and they say, okay, eat keto, take cold showers, sleep eight hours, blah blah blah. How do I know? Eating keto is good. Some people say it's bad. How do I know vitamin C is good? Some people say vitamins don't work. So how do you ever know if you're right? Because everybody's just so passionate about everything.
1: Yeah, I I think you have to start by deciding what your credible sources are and what your standards of evidence are. And from there, you also have to be clear about your goals, right? Not, not everyone has the same objectives when it comes to a healthy lifestyle. And I think that's one of the reasons that in you know, in the health community as in so many others, people talk past each other. Is one group is you know is really interested in promoting longevity? Another group is more concerned about quality of life. And sometimes, what's good for one outcome is not optimal for the other outcome. Uh, so I think I, just getting some alignment on what what are you trying to solve for is is probably a good first step. And then I'd also just ask, okay, so you say, how do I ever know if I'm right? I think a, a different version of that question is is to say, well how do I know if this model that I'm I'm going to implement in my life is better than the other models available? Uh, and I think that's what we're aiming for, right? We're aiming for an improvement, not for correct. Right.
0: So, So it's almost like what you would ask if you're doing due diligence on a company, if you're an investor, like what, let's say someone pitches you a company and there's 6 billion people on the planet. Why did this one person or how did this one person come up with an idea that all 6 billion people didn't come up with? And now you're somehow, how did you get the opportunity to invest in this amazing one in 6 billion idea? That's kind of like a starting point for like asking, why does this person have an unfair advantage over the other 6 billion on this industry or this idea? And why am I getting the opportunity? So in your Warby Parker, uh, experience, for instance, you were getting the opportunity because they were friends of yours from, they were like ex-students of yours. Yeah. Um, but, but I think you were stumped even why were they why were they being blessed with this amazing idea as opposed to anybody else and so at least initially you didn't uh invest so um it's the same thing about an idea like if someone has an idea uh that they're real, you know they're they're against this candidate or this issue or whatever um or they think that this is the answer to this problem how do why are they blessed with this? Or how did they get so much of an advantage in this area that they have the correct answer over everyone else? And I think kind of starting from that point sounds sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And I think there's something we can learn from super forecasters here. So as, as you know well, there's a whole community of, of forecasters who compete to try to predict future events. And I, I had a blast learning from the world's best election forecaster, arguably, when I was writing the book. His name is Jean-Pierre Begumme. Uh, and Jean Pierre had you know predicted the the early rise of Donald Trump when most most pu- not only pundits but also most forecasters thought he was a joke. Uh, he's just dominated a number of forecasting tournaments, and one of the things he does is when he forms an opinion, he makes a list of the conditions where he would change his own mind, mm. and that way he's keeping himself honest and I, I think this has such powerful implications for being an investor. Uh, when you look at, at an entrepreneur. Right, and you say, okay, I'm, I don't think this is, this is backable. What you should also do is say, okay, what would have to change in the world or what would have to change in the founding team in order for me to see potential in this idea? And the moment those conditions fall into place, it might be time to rethink your initial investment decision. But by the way, it's also even more important if you're an
0: entrepreneur because there's a huge cognitive bias which is that once you start committing time and potentially money and start also convincing others to buy into your idea for a business, you're, you're in the, I don't have a bias bias. And, and it's hard to see if your idea, if your own personal idea is not a good
1: idea. Yeah. The, 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 well, my favorite name for that trap is escalation of commitment to a losing course of action. And it's so easy. A lot of people think it's sunk costs, some costs are not the most important driver of escalation it's much more about ego and image mm. i have to convince myself and convince other people that i made a smart decision and we get we get caught in this self-justification spiral where we're looking backward and saying all right how do i prove to everybody including me that i wasn't an idiot <laughs> that i wasn't an idiot when i when i went in and decided to to commit my time and money here and uh, you know there's there's really no substitute here for just separating yourself and saying okay let me talk to somebody who didn't make that initial commitment and can take a clear-eyed look at moving forward is this a sensible investment of time and money
0: yeah you know it's it's interesting because thinking about my strongest opinion of the prior year or at least the one that was the most public was the one that you know about new york city and i found myself often because i went on media during that period and i found myself being put in a position where i had to argue why new york city was going to have these major problems. And I didn't want to be in the position of defending the death of New York city. When I love New York city, my my goal in writing the article was to find solutions. And so I tried to keep that mindset of, I really just want to explore solutions instead of keep arguing over and over again, all the bad data. But, you know, so I didn't want to be biased by my own <laughs> By the questions being asked me,, I didn't want to keep reconfirming ke- right, reconfirming. because you're you're
1: just being asked to to defend your argument over and over again, which is not going to really get anyone anywhere. right. I, I love your reframe, though, because I think what you did was was basically said to people, "Prove me wrong. Like what I'm trying to do is is say, look, like the the house is on fire. We need to put it out." Uh, and so I think the best as somebody who loves New York, the best case scenario for you, is that because you sounded this alarm, now people take action and they're able to prevent the very situation you were afraid of.
0: But by the same thinking though, and as you mentioned, a big driving force in this escalation of commitment is people don't want to seem stupid. I don't now I'm in this position where so many people have insulted me and threatened me and called for my death or whatever, or called me an, an idiot or worse now I don't want to be an idiot. (laughs) So now I have to keep telling myself, I don't want New York city to die just to prove, I don't, I don't want to have the wrong motive now here, you know, just to prove that I'm a smart person. (laughs) And, but that's a, that's a huge bias. It's like, once you have this escalation of commitment now, like your, your personality, your reputation, your identity is at stake. And that's a scary uh, thing.
1: Yeah, but you, I, I think you you gave yourself the perfect out earlier when you said everybody wants to hear the failure story. Yeah. They want to know how you screwed up and why you were wrong. And so I, I think you're in great shape either, either way, right? Either New York City post-pandemic is still in trouble and you're the guy who predicted it, or you were very publicly wrong and now you have an incredible story to tell and you get to learn a whole bunch about either how your analysis was off or how the way you sounded the alarm actually made your prediction a self-negating prophecy. That's true. And I think I have to
0: adopt that mindset is that, let's say I'm wrong, okay? What I really want to find there is focus on what's the story I tell about this as opposed to like, well, I can't be wrong. I'm Everyone's going to laugh at me and it's going to be horrible because that will happen too. But I have to be able to kind of weave through that and and, you know, f- focus on, you know the good things about being wrong and and also the story i could tell about it so I, it seems like always you have to reframe how you connect your identity to an idea or a solution
1: yes i think you just hit the nail on the head i think it's it's a question of of detaching your identity from your past successes or failures or just making your identity forming your identity around the idea of rethinking and unlearning and continuing to improve yourself as opposed to always being obsessed with proving yourself. And James, you you have to be the easiest case, right? On this because this is one of the things that your fans adore about you is I think the first post I ever read of yours, is, gosh, it must be 8 years ago now, was it, it opened with like, here are all the ways that I lost a boatload of money and here are all the bonehead decisions I made as an entrepreneur, right? And I think that, that humility, that passion for learning from your mistakes and sharing them publicly is part of what makes you such a relatable and, uh, and for many people, inspiring thought leader, right? As they say, okay, like, this guy is just like me, and I can learn a lot from that.
0: Let me ask you this, like, and, and by the way, I appreciate uh, uh, you remembering an article from eight years ago. I don't even know if I remember my articles from eight years ago, but, um, you know, there's there's another type of place where, or a situation where everybody remains very firm in their beliefs, and that's a form of groupthink. So, like, we saw it with this election. It wasn't that I just liked one candidate or another, or anybody just likes one candidate or another. They like every single belief of that of that, party and hate every single belief of the other party. And I found it amazing, like, why is there a hundred percent correlation between people who want to lower taxes uh, and people who love hydroxychloroquine and a hundred percent correlation between people who want to raise taxes and people who hate hydroxychloroquine. Like they shouldn't be connected at all. And yet these two issues that are unrelated were hundred percent correlated with each other. And, and so again, it's like, these aren't preachers or prosecutors or politicians. They're kind of just followers and, 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 and of a group. Like, why wouldn't they recognize
1: that this correlation is statistically impossible? Well, I, <laughs> I, I think they're actually all of the above is the challenge. I think that they're, they're preaching that their side is right. They're prosecuting the other side for being wrong. And they're, they're doing that in a way that falls in perfect line with their political tribe. And I, I wonder if all three of these mindsets come together in a way that, that creates just the most factional divisions that we see in society right now. Um, and, I'm, you know, in many ways, they probably fuel each other, right? Because the moment that you identify as a member of a political tribe, it's easy to, to know what you're supposed to preach and what you're supposed to prosecute. Uh, so I don't know what's the chicken and what's the egg here. But I think for starters, I would say it's, there's a, there's a whole political psychology of of why people have certain ideological views. And if you break down the left-right spectrum in America, uh, my read of the data is there, there are two axes that differentiate liberals and conservatives. Uh, the first one is support for social change. And the second is tolerance for inequality. And I do think that if you look across—I agree with you, by the way. I think if you're a person who thinks independently— and has curiosity and is interested in the truth, the odds that you would land in a similar position on any 15 issues with any other person should be very low. But I think underlying a lot of of popular conservative policies um, is a tendency to maintain the status quo uh, and a a level of tolerance for inequality of outcomes, because what you care about is equality of opportunity uh, and believing in a just world. And then on the liberal side, it's sort of the reverse, right? Saying, okay, we need to, we need to change the system. Uh, we need to make progress. And if we have unequal outcomes, that is a sign that the system itself is unfair and broken as opposed to, well, no, it's just a meritocracy as opposed to, you know, an egalitarian regime. Um, and I think that lens has helped me understand a little bit why people sometimes, uh, sometimes fall in line on multiple policies in the same direction. But I agree that is not enough to explain it.
0: So so maybe their, their, their biases are reinforced, not only there's an escalation of commitment, even if there's an escalation of commitment with someone near you, that's gonna, you're going to inherit some of that, almost like a virus.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a classic group polarization effect where you, know, you join a, a tribe of like-minded people, you hear the same arguments over and over again, you get trapped in a filter bubble or an echo chamber, confirmation bias kicks in, and then you also, you want to vie for status in the group. So you don't just want to belong to the tribe, right? You want to stand out in the tribe. You want to be one of the most important members of the tribe. And that means you have to be more extreme than the average person in the tribe, right, mm-hmm. in order to prove that you're really one of us, that you you represent the heart of who we are and what we stand for. And over time, all the people in the group, because of those pressures, tend to gravitate in a more extreme direction than they started.
0: Uh, yeah, that's really interesting because it's not just b- b- a sense of wanting to belong, but everybody has it's like a, a neurochemical thing. Everybody wants to rise in the tribe. So that's gonna polarize. Once you, once, once the tribe finds itself, everyone's gonna start polarizing each other. So it's it's so interesting, all of this stuff. Um, I'm gonna go to your last section where you give uh, some, some actions about how to essentially, oh, oh, the goal of all of this, I would say the goal of your book is basically when you're open-minded and when you're willing to see two sides of a coin, you're twice as smart, basically. <laughs> like, you get smarter.
1: I think you can get even smarter if you see through the many lenses of a prism, not yeah. just the heads and tails of a coin. Yeah.
0: So, so, so you give all these practical actions for, for how to change your thinking or how to change how you deal with these biases— And you know, some of this, like you have a section, how to teach kids to think again, you have, uh, stay open to rethinking your future. This is a really important one to stay open to rethinking your future because so many people say, well, I have a five-year plan and I'm going to stick with it. But my whole point is, as you learn, there's things at the beginning of the five years you didn't know. And so you might learn something which it makes it critical to change your five year plan. But, again, people always have New Year's resolutions, five-year <laughs> resolutions, objectives, goals, and those goals they might find out later are inappropriate. Uh, yeah. like, like, let's take an athlete as an example. You might be an athlete for many years and at the right at the level where you're gonna go major pro and you realize, oh wait, everybody else who's at this level is taking steroids illegally and I'm gonna have to do that too. And of course, many people then ultimately start, that's how they start
1: taking steroids. But you have to yeah. be able to pull back even then. Or they get injured, and all of a sudden their career is gone. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the best case scenario with a five-year plan is that you end up, uh, you're you're lost in the mountains in, in Switzerland, and somebody gives you a map of, uh, <laughs> of Germany, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, the plan that I made, my five-year plan that I made two years ago, does that account for all the ways that I've changed and all the ways that the world around me has changed? Probably not. I think we have such a hard time letting go of these early images of who we want to be and where we want to live and who we want to marry and what we want to be when we grow up. And it is amazing to me how often people realize too late that those images no longer make sense for them. Like, I mean, the the pandemic, right, has been a... a you, you said it was a mass experiment earlier. Most of us have been forced to rethink a lot of assumptions that we'd never really questioned before. Like what? Uh, the number of people who you know suddenly realized, I actually want to be living in a different country, or I want to be living you know in a in a rural area as opposed to urban, or vice versa in some cases, right? Uh, the number of people who said, you know what, like I don't believe in a nuclear family. I suddenly realized, and I want to like, I want to live in more of a college dorm, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna have a bubble of people that I quarantine with, right? All these things that people never would have even contemplated before become totally palatable all of a sudden. And I think to me, that's a signal that we need to give ourselves permission to rethink those plans and images more often.
0: Yeah. that uh, that That's really interesting because I think during this pandemic, it was almost like an intervention of some sort. Like it cleared the deck of your brain and took you everybody out of their routine. And, and not only that, it, it, there, there's a strong feeling that the routine can't be recaptured, so it's a, we we were forced to think. Well, where do I really want to live? Where how do I really want to live my life? And uh, sky's the limit. You could you could still be doing what you, your job, but live in Malaysia if you want, or or Hawaii, or wherever, or you know Kansas City if you want to still live in the
1: U.S., but that's a fairly cheap area, probably. Yeah, and that did happen. James, that goes to one of my favorite practical ideas and Think Again, which is, for years I've encouraged students to do career checkups and say, the same way that you go to a doctor when you're not sick or a dentist to get your teeth cleaned, you should check in at least twice a year on, is is this career allowing me to fulfill my values? Have I reached a learning plateau or a lifestyle plateau? Uh, is there something that that I now want to achieve or some skill that I want to master? that wasn't on my radar when I chose this job. And I've started to wonder if if we should broaden that and even do life checkups and say, look, you know, if you're married with your partner, um, you know, maybe with a close group of friends, if you're single, just a couple times a year, like, am, am I leading the life that actually aligns with who I am today, as opposed to just following a map that some older version of me, or I should say earlier version of me made? Uh, and yeah. it. I think if we don't do that, it's just too easy to fall into one of those escalation traps.
0: And so, so, you know, I, I sort of asked this earlier, but I'm, I'm curious again, how do you avoid taking it too much to the other side, which is to say, uh, you know, what's the odds that my brand new business idea is a good idea? Probably not very high. I guess I should just go back to my job or whatever. Like
1: how do you, how do you do have confidence in your confidence? Well, I think that's where you have to run the experiment right so you you can't commit to a negative opinion any more than I want you to commit to a positive opinion before you have the data and I would say mm. it's it's actually too early to judge whether you're the person who's going to be a disruptive entrepreneur if you haven't if you haven't launched a company if you haven't built a minimum viable product uh, if you haven't you know market tested some of your initial hypotheses and I just say we should we should be slower to form opinions about whether we're going to make it or not, whether our ideas are good or bad, and say, "All right, this is a this is a provisional thought. It's a hunch. Let me go and find out." You know, I, I think this is such a, a valuable book to to you know.
0: So think again that it just came out. I think this is such a valuable book that you wrote. It adds to the literature of all all of this stuff about how wrong we tend to be not because we're stupid, but because of these enormous cognitive biases, you know, you know. so there's literature about cognitive biases by people like Daniel Kahneman and, and others. There's literature on being wrong, uh, like Phil Tetlock's super forecasting, Katherine Schultz being wrong. Uh, and I feel this really adds to all of that because it not only documents the in scientific way, the various ways in which we could be wrong and unaware of it, but also, how do they overcome it? I really like the idea of, uh, you know, constantly trying to, um, you know, pr- what, constantly query your critics. Why are they against what you're doing? Like really try to understand their point of view, constantly looking at the data to try to prove yourself wrong. You know, in a sense, sense steel manning your argument and just a, reminding yourself that, hey, I might not know or, or actually, really reminding yourself what you don't know when you're in the middle of a conversation. Like, if I'm talking about a football play that I came up with, I'm probably wrong that this is a good idea. But constantly reminding yourself what you don't know, like what what other you know, just to kind of round this up. What other advice would you say stands out as that that you carry with you in your thoughts when you're you know talking to people and you're trying to improve your own thinking?
1: A, a huge area of focus for me that. I really reinforced while I was writing Think Again was I, I no longer want to pay any attention to whether I agree with people's conclusions as a question of should I follow them on social media? Do I want to have a conversation with them? Mm. What I'm interested in now is their thought process. I want to know whether they'll stretch my thinking, whether they're committed to the pursuit of truth, whether they're both rigorous and flexible in how they approach problems. And if they are, If they disagree with my conclusions, I'm going to learn more from them, right? So last time I checked, James, the the purpose of learning is not to affirm what we already believe. It's to keep evolving what we know and believe. And so for me, that means I'm constantly looking to increase my challenge network and figure out who are the thoughtful people who disagree with me and what can I learn, not just from what they know, but also from how they think.
0: And what if you find yourself thinking, no, nobody, there's no
1: thoughtful people who disagree with me. (laughs) I think you might be drinking too much of the Kool-Aid that you've been preaching and it could be time to find out what you don't know.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, uh, by the way, just like curiosity, do you ever study this in the context of games? So for instance, um, a poker player, it has to make you know thousands of decisions in, an e- in, in a typical evening of playing poker. And it'd be interesting to know how many times their first instinct about what hands another player has it was correct or not. Like that would be an interesting domain because it's very concrete or, or chess. There's a saying in chess, for instance, uh, once you find a good move, find a better move. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of encourages, you know, rethinking your, your, instead of just, you know, making the the instinctive move, take
1: a, close your eyes and take a second look. That is such a cool idea. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't done systematic research on this, but Uh, Two two favorite poker champions are Maria Konnikova and Annie Duke, and in talking to both of them about how they play, uh, they both said, look, my training in psychology was a huge advantage because I had this scientific mindset where I could say, okay, here's what I think the other person has in their hand, but I'm not sure, and let me figure out what moves I can make that would increase my confidence or that would change my probability set. And I think that it's, it's so interesting to say, okay, poker is a very different game than super forecasting, but the techniques that seem to build excellence across them are pretty similar, which is uh, in a, if you're a super forecaster, one of the things you do differently, so let's take entrepreneurship as a, a practical example of this. Uh, if you're a regular entrepreneur, what you do is you imagine a future state of the world, and then you figure out the strategy that's likely to succeed and bring you product market fit in that world. If you're a super forecaster, or I would argue a super entrepreneur, what you do is you envision lots of possible states of the world. And then you choose the strategy that has a high probability of success across many of them. And I I think that a great poker player does much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: interesting. And probably uh, a good chess player too, because chess players often make, even the, the best chess players make serious mistakes and blunders. And they have to sit back and either get upset about it or uh, figure out how, what were they, what was the psychology of how they were thinking and how can they adjust it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm no chess expert, but I know that one of the the skills that I've always been encouraged to try out by by chess grandmasters is, you know, don't just think two or three steps ahead, think seven or eight ahead. And that means before you make a move, you not only have to anticipate your opponent's response, but then all your options in response to that, and then how they'll respond accordingly. And the longer that sequence is, the more places there are for your assumptions to be wrong.
0: So that's going for depth. There's also the idea, there was a book in the, I think it was in the 50s or 60s written called uh, Think Like a Grandmaster by a Russian grandmaster named Alexander Khodov. And his um, first technique is first, before you go deep, identify all the possible moves. And and so he calls them candidate moves. And he find, he found that most people were, going with their instinctive first choice and going really deep and then they run out of time so they have to make that move. They kind of forced escalation of commitment to make the move. And as opposed to having candidate moves and realizing, oh, there are many choices just in case this
1: one doesn't work. That it's there's such an interesting parallel between that and a Paul Nutt study of decision making. Hundreds of organizational decisions, half of them fail. The biggest and clearest differentiator between successful and failed decisions was the failed decisions only considered two options. Mm. You have two possibilities on the table, and we spend all our time evaluating which one is better as opposed to going broad, like you said, and asking, well, what's what's behind door number three? And making sure that I've considered all the options before I start to evaluate them.
0: This reminds me of Atul Gawande's uh, checklist manifesto. So uh, by having an actual checklist, and one of them might be, let's say, for chess, like look at at least six possible moves before you start going deep um and may the next thing on the checklist might be uh make sure none of your no zero of your pieces are hanging or you know they're not at risk and that sort of avoids uh, the cognitive biases a little bit mm-hmm. and so that that's one way to kind of what once you realize that you have these biases you're almost developing a checklist for how to think about you know
1: charged situations or high stakes moments might be a good a good idea. I think it's a great idea. And one of the things I did after I finished writing this book was I made a list of all the biases and heuristics and traps that I had covered, and I tried to analyze which ones I've fallen victim to more often and less often so that anytime I make a decision or form an opinion that's important moving forward, I can say, all right, based on my past, my track record, uh, i know I know I'm very confident that this is the right answer right now, but I know i'm I'm vulnerable to thinking like a prosecutor. I know that I'm, uh, I'm consistently falling into a situation where—long uh, uh, w- long story short—where uh, I have a very hard time letting go of my, my prior commitments, and so escalation's often a challenge for me. So given that, how do I apply what I know about thinking like a scientist and de-escalating to make sure that I'm not steering myself in a direction I'll regret?
0: Yeah, interesting. I got I to gotta take on the same mindset— i i basically just remind myself every morning that i'm much much less intelligent than i think i am <laughs> and that's helped me somewhat but it, it, nothing could ever really help in
1: a huge way but even if you get help in a little way it's good there might be a variation on that that's interesting which is i i think a lot of people have a hard time admitting that they're not that smart right and your your level of humility is is not as common as we would like it to be among highly intelligent people so well, it might not be common with me, which is why I have to remind myself every morning. I, I think that's that's up to you to judge, but I, I would just say that maybe a workaround for some people is to say, look, I'm smarter and more knowledgeable today than I was yesterday. And so that that dumber version of me that committed to this choice or formed this opinion could probably benefit from a little of my current wisdom.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to think about it too. Like, what do I know now that might change all my preconceptions? And of course- thinking, you know, all there's a good evolutionary reason for cognitive biases is that there are shortcuts in thinking so that we can make quick decisions when we need to, but you know, like running when there's a lion chasing us or when we hear a rustle in the yeah. leaves. But uh you know, now it's 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 very high stakes in that our decisions affect the entire world and affects all our relationships and much bigger than the 30 people in the tribe that we would normally have to deal with. Now we could just argue and insult people on Twitter all day. So it's a different kind of tribe. You got it. But, uh, but anyway, Adam, once again, uh, great book, Think Again. I, this is a book for reading and rereading and all your books have been great and have been life-changing, you know, from give and take on. And uh, this thing Again contains so many powerful ideas. Like I said, I really think it adds to a lot of literature on this topic and ultimately leads to a, a, a more likelihood of peak performance. If you could take the the suggestions that you talk about in this in this book, plus we didn't talk about all the stories you write about in this book. It's, it's, it's so many great stories. I actually just wrote a book myself and I, I include the Wright brothers story, a very similar version of the story in your book, in my book. Uh, I can't wait to read it. Congratulations. Yeah. And actually I, I, I also use the idea of experimenting in order to learn as opposed to the 10,000 hour rule of repetition with a coach and deliberate practice. I try to have a model of speeding it up by doing experiments and always getting out of your comfort zone and repeating that. So you're exploring always the areas you don't know, as opposed to repeating
1: over and over the things you do know. That really resonates It's sorely needed. I think practice makes perfect, but it doesn't make new. And we need to experiment if we want to discover things we don't know. What's the book called? Skip the Line. And the idea is everyone
0: will always tell you when you switch careers and interests, everyone will always tell you, hey, man, you got to pay your dues. Like I've been working 20 years with this, it's 10,000 hours. But if you kind of do experiments that no one's ever done, you kind of explore spaces in the industry that you're switching to that maybe no one covered and could an experiment has very little downside but massive upside like any scientific experiment. You know, so I I play around with this, at least this metaphor of experimenting as opposed to just putting in 10,000 hours. Send it over. I can't wait to read it. Oh, definitely. And uh, thanks once again, Adam, for coming on the
1: podcast and uh, hopefully keep coming on. (laughs) Thank you, James. Pleasure to be here as always. Yeah, thanks, Adam.